Well, good morning, people of grace. Oh, let's do a better job than that. Good morning. All right. My name is Bill Schreier, and I have the deep honor to serve as one of your elders here at Grace. You may have met my sweetheart, Shelly, God's miraculous gift to me 42 years ago. Shelly and I have been at Grace since 1982, and we're very grateful to be here. I feel like I've grown up here at Grace. I have the privilege to be part of the teaching teaching team here in the adult community as I work with the men's ministry. I'm very grateful to be here. I also serve as one of the pastors at Grace at uh, Mission Possible at 12th and Chicago. I'm one of the pastors there on staff. I was raised in the 60s in suburban Long Island, New York. Yeah, I know. It was a long time ago. We went to church each Sunday, sometimes twice. I attended vacation Bible school, a Christ-centered scouting program, church youth group, church camp, and more. One night at church camp, around the campfire, the Lord convicted me of my need for him, but more how very much he loved me. Mm. It was the love of God that drew me to him. That night I accepted, I responded to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. I accepted what we call today the gift of the Lord's salvation. As best as I know how, I... I asked God to be my Lord. I'll never forget the incredible peace I had that night when I went to sleep. I clearly remember going to sleep and I was saying to myself over and over, he loves me. He loves me. He loves me. As I attended church over the years, I began to notice something that I did not understand. At church, there seemed to be two kinds of Christians. Some of the Christians attracted me. There was something about them that I was drawn to. They were always energized. They always had energy. This is hard for me to understand, and I chalked it up as differences in personality. I was wrong. After dating for two and a half years, my sweetheart Shelly and I were married. I was smitten. I found my soul's mate, God's gift to me. We had no education no money, and no plan. Undaunted by these circumstances, we were going to live on love. I was going to be with my girlfriend forever. And she loved me. Our life together soon became very hard. Our young marriage was in trouble quickly. We fell into the hard, hard work ethic and loveless relationship that had been modeled in both of our parents' lives We were not happy. My lovely bride, my girlfriend, was shriveling in front of me, and I was clueless as to how to be a husband. Marriage was not like dating. It required a great deal more, more that I was not aware of and more that I did not know how to give. This is a really polite way to say that I was immature, selfish, and self-ruled. If you wanted to throw arrogant in there, that fits as well. I had no concept of yielding my will to God in any meaningful way. We continued attending church, and I continued to notice even more so that there were two kinds of believers at church. I'm going to identify them as on and off. The believers that were on were engaging. 
They were energized. Somehow they were always talking about Jesus. But most striking about them was their obvious joy. They were always joyful. There was Mrs. Ketchum, for instance, who we all called Grandma Ketchup as we grew up. There was Jim Riverwood, and if you knew Jim, you knew Jim loved Jesus. Or Mr. Boshan, who taught the boys' Sunday school class far into his 80s. There's a long list of believers that were on that God used to shape my life. One of the memories that is precious to me is on my wedding day, Mrs. Ketchum, I mean Grandma Ketchup, who cared for me at church since I was four years old, came up to me. Now, I had to bend way down. She's built much lower to the ground than I was. She was ancient when I was four. She was more ancient then. She said, Billy, now you listen to me. Yes, Grandma, I said. I have a verse for you, and you must repeat it every day. Yes, Grandma, I said. And as if I wasn't listening, she grabbed my arm and pulled me forward. I was off balancing, trying not to fall over on her. She said, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not unto your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. I thought Grandma Ketchup was done, but no, she still had my arm. Looking me straight in the eye without apology, she said, say it. (laughs) Thankfully, I had memorized these verses many years before, or she would have had me learn them right then and there. Grandma still had my arm. I repeated the verses. She still had my arm, and she said, I know Shelly too. I love all my children. You be kind to that girl. What could I say? She still had my arm, and I was beginning to cramp up, trying not to fall over on her. So I said, yes, ma'am. Grandma suddenly let go, and I lurched back, bumped into Shelly. I turned to excuse myself, and I was immediately engulfed in a man's arms. He picked me up, up off the ground, my toes reaching for the ground. He pressed all the breath out of my chest. I was in big trouble. It was Jim Rivrood, a mountain of a man, a mason and a carpenter. His arms were bigger than my thighs. He still had me, and I was in trouble. I don't know which is more important, my breath or my feet off the ground, but I was in trouble. Jim was starting to try to say something. He put me down, and he wagged his finger at me, and this is what he said. Billy. You may forget me, but never forget my Jesus. See? I said, yes, sir, checking my ribs to see if they were broken. Jim started to tear up again, and you know what he did then? He hugged me again, breath gone and all. Grandma Ketchup, Jim Riverwood, among a long list of individuals the Lord had in my life that have shaped me, they were on. All during the hard days of our early marriage, I was not aware that God was pursuing me. He kept drawing me to church. (laughs) He kept drawing my heart to my Bible. I would read and receive some comfort. He kept prompting me to pray, poor prayers though they were, full of me, 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 and me. Mm. 
during some of the hardest days of a young marriage, unwillingly I attended a multiple-day, a multi-day Christian conference with Shelley. And God again convinced me of his very great love for me. He brought to my attention again how very much I needed him. And again, I gave my life to the Lord, this time as an adult. I begged God to fix my life. I begged him. I prayed the prayer of a desperate man. I remember clearly. Lord, I give up. Uncle. Lord, anywhere, anytime, any place, anything. Please. And you know what he did? He sent me to Texas. <laughs> Cows and horny toads, cactus and snakes, biting ants and caliche. I went to my first Texas barbecue as any good Yankee would, and I had my hamburgers and hot dogs in tow, and a guy says, what's that? I said, well, it's hamburgers and hot dogs. He says, well, you just put those things right there, there son. You just rest them right there. You come with me. I'm going to show you in Texas barbecue something that we eat. That wasn't bad enough, but as I sat on the table, the entertainment of the meal, they handed me something I'd never seen before in my life. I think it's called a tamale. And I decided to try to bite through the corn husk and all. Yes, God had sent me to a different country. Now, I'm not kidding you. You got to remember, I was a kid from suburban Long Island, New York. I never in my life seen this thing called a what? A jalapeno? In New York, when you order a deli sandwich, you automatically get a slice of dill pickle. By the way, there's no good corner delicatessens in Texas. Anyway, when you order a sandwich in New York, you get the slice of dill pickle. So I came to Texas on my first day in the job. I ordered a sandwich from the lunch wagon that came by. And the guy gave me this funny-looking pickle. And he saw my look of puzzlement on my face, and he goes, oh, that's a, that's a Texas pickle, Yank. Now he knew I was a Yankee. I have no idea. So not knowing any better, I popped this Texas pickle in my mouth and bit through the seeds and all. Yeah, I was on fire. I began sweating in places I didn't know my body could sweat. I was in a panic. I spit that Texas pickle out on the ground, grabbed a can of soda, and guzzled it down. Well, now I had a gas belly. I was frothing at the mouth, and I was still on fire. And the vendor gave me a carton of milk, mercifully. Here, Yank, this will put the fire out. Texas, sure ain't New York. Anyway, the Lord brought us to Texas in 1981. After being in Texas a few years, the Lord blessed us with children. But our marriage continued in a downward spiral of lovelessness. We continued at church, this church, but my sweetheart moved further and further into pain. I was a hardworking and faithful husband and father, but nothing I did improved our relationship. So I did the only thing I knew to do. I worked harder. Surely that was the answer. God was at work, but I didn't know it. He kept putting Christians in my path that were on. Here's an example. I was invited to a men's Bible study. You know, these guys prayed more than they studied the Bible. <laughs> and I attended an adult Sunday school class. And you can't imagine what the topic was. Wait for it. Marriage. 
I found a strange circumstance here at Grace that I'd noticed before. Here at this church, there were Christians who were either on or off. In desperation, Shell and I attended a marriage ministry conference. This conference focused on couple communication, couple relationship, and your relationship with God. My sweetheart was in great emotional pain in very large part from her unloving husband. And I pretended I didn't have any pain. Guys don't have pain. At the end of the conference, much to my surprise, Shelly and I were invited to join the leadership of this marriage ministry. What I did not understand was that God was, through the leaders of this ministry, inviting us to a crash course in discipleship. We were the newest recruits, the newest disciplees. Over the space of three years, a team of Christians took us through a boot camp of pain, the pain of godly conviction and repentance. I want to tell you a little bit about it. When we met as a leadership team preparing for a weekend seminar, part of our preparation was to pray, and then we'd sing. When we sang, we'd make a circle together and we'd all hug. And their favorite chorus was, I've got the joy, 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 joy of the Lord down in my heart. The group would sing loud and long, seemingly forever. Some of them would sing through tears of joy. As I'm telling you now, I can see it as if it was yesterday. Now, here's the thing. I did not have joy in my heart. I mouthed the words, but the words were hollow. Mm. Little did I know the discipleship, the repentance and growth I was about to undergo. There was a couple in this circle that discipled Shell and I for two years. For two years, they came into our living room every two weeks, and with great love and patience, they discipled us towards Christ. They put up with a lot of nonsense for me. They discipled us towards living for Christ versus living for self. It was a very difficult and painful time for Shelley and I. The flesh, our sinful selves, were very stubborn and well-practiced in living for self and selfish living. Living the flesh looked like doing whatever it took to avoid or reduce the pain. Living in the flesh gave no concern to God, but focused on self. Living in the flesh, we were not yielded to God, either individually or as a couple. About a year into this two-year process they were discipling us, I was astonished to find out that just before we met them, their college-age son was in an auto accident, and due to some foolish decisions, had become a quadriplegic. He would be dependent on others for the rest of his life for the very most basic elements, activities of the day. And if that wasn't enough, then I found out that their daughter, against their strong advice, had entered a marriage that very quickly failed. This couple that discipled us, they had great joy. I mean, it exuded from them. I'm telling you now, I can see their faces. I can see them singing the choruses with tears. I can hear their voices sing. 
I've got the joy, 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 joy of the Lord in my heart. I can hear their prayers of gratitude and wonder and praise the Lord. I didn't have anything near this joy. I did not understand it. It was foreign to me. At the time I observed it, I just did not understand. Where was the anger? Where was the disappointment? Where was the bitterness? Where was the complaining? Where was the grief? Where was the pain? Their circumstances would have crushed me. Oh, were they sad? Were they grieving? Were they disappointed? Were there tears of grief and long nights of turmoil, shattered dreams? Was there heartache? Yes, yes, yes. But the incredible difference that I noticed was their devotion to the Lord was not dependent on circumstances. Said another way, they had committed not to allow anything to come between themselves and their awareness of God. It was their experience, life with God, that made all the difference. The sorrow, the pain, the daily turmoil of responsibility and care could not mute the joy within them. The incredible power of God, the joy of the Lord, his very nature and character through them, this was the result of giving their hearts to the will of God. They were rejoicing always, praying continually, and they gave thanks in all circumstances. This couple, for three years, lived the reality of the Apostle Paul's instruction to the believers in Thessalonica. He wrote this while he was in jail in Philippi. He wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 and 18, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This couple were those that I describe as on. What was it that made them so very different from the other Christians that I knew? The difference was so obvious, it would stun me right in the face, but I was not able to comprehend what it was. Whatever it was, I wanted it. I needed it. Slowly, God enabled me to understand that I was a Christian who was off. What was it that caused such a great difference between this couple and me, between this couple and Shelley and I? I kept asking myself the question over and over and over, what was the difference? God, with gentleness and patience, through the discipleship of this couple, slowly, slowly, I began to understand. What was the difference between those that were on and the other Christians that were off? The difference was and is their relationship with God. Don't leave me here. Track with me now. It's taken me half a life to come to this understanding. I want to take you to one of the most intimate passages in all of Scripture, John 15. We have time to look at just a few verses, verses 4 and 5. Jesus says to his disciples then... And to his disciples today, abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, 
neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus describes how to have a fruitful life. Stay attached to Jesus. And then Jesus tells us why he has said this. In verse 11, the Lord says, These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. He explains to his disciples in the upper room something that was too fantastic to imagine. An intimate and personal, ongoing relationship with God. Jesus says, look, you can do nothing without me. I'm the vine and you're the branch attached to me. You are totally dependent on me. You get your water from me. You get your food from me. You cannot live without me. Without me, you die. You wither. He continues, with me you will live. With me you will bear fruit, much fruit. Jesus, using a grapevine as branches as an illustration, as an object lesson, describes an intimate, personal, ongoing relationship with God himself. The truth of Christ's words are as true today as they were when they were spoken. Why did Jesus tell this to his disciples? What is so very important about this? Look at the explanation that Jesus, the creator, gave. John 15, 11, I have spoken these things to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus told his disciples and us, I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. There it is. That's the difference between the believers who are on and those that are off. It is the very joy of the Lord. It is the joy of the Lord within you. The joy of God himself. This is what I had been missing. The joy of the Lord, the very joy of Jesus, is what this couple had when they discipled Shelly and I through all of their pain. The joy of the Lord is what Grandma Ketchup had on her face <laughs> as she almost pulled me over on top of herself. The joy of the Lord filled Jim Ruvu with such gratitude he couldn't speak of Jesus but begin to cry. Though I was a Christian, I did not have this joy. But wait, there's more. In John 17, Jesus in his prayer for those who will be his disciples prays something absolutely incredible. Hear the very heart of Jesus, the creator, as he prays a prayer of intercession over all those who will come to faith. Christians. Oh, oh, oh. And before we read the words of Christ, consider something with me. A request from Jesus, the creator who always did what the Father said to do and only spoke what the Father told him to speak, a request from Jesus the Creator through intercession to God the Father is a decree. Praying the heart of the Father, Jesus is what Jesus said in John 17, 13. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, 
that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus commands that his joy, the very joy of the creator, be fulfilled in us. Who? Those that claim the name of Christ. Christians. In you and I, if we've given our lives to him. If you track me to this point, you're in one of two places. Either you know exactly what I'm talking about and what I've explained and you're rejoicing and you're one of those that is on. Or you have no idea what I'm talking about. If you are a Christian, you are off. I'm going to say this as clearly as I know how. I've been on a journey of understanding of what it means to abide in Christ. He is the vine. I'm the branch. I've been on a journey of learning to be with God. It has been a journey of learning how to be filled with God the Holy Spirit, setting aside my sinful self. In Romans 6, this is explained as Christians, our sinful self, crucified, died with Christ. We are freed no longer to live as slaves to sin. We've been released to live our new life in Christ. My brothers and sisters, beloved in Christ, Christians, there are only two states, possible states, possible conditions for your heart. Either this very moment you are abiding in Christ, living with God, and you're filled with God the Holy Spirit, having set aside your sinful self, and you're on. Or... You are not abiding in Christ. You're not living with God. And you're not filled with God, the Holy Spirit, being controlled by your self-will. And you are off. Either right now you are experiencing abiding in Christ, life with God, and you are filled with God, the Holy Spirit, and you're on. Or you're in a state of self-will, self-direction, sinfulness, and you're off. I know this from years of personal experience. Years of not abiding in Christ. Years of not living with God. Years of not setting aside my sinful self to be filled with God, the Holy Spirit. In Galatians 5, we're instructed to walk in the Spirit. That is to be filled with the Spirit. As a result, we will not obey our sinful self. If you are abiding in Christ and you're living with God, and you're filled with God the Holy Spirit, one of the results is joy. There must be joy, because God is joyous. It's part of his nature. It's part of his essence. God is joy within himself. God's joy is not dependent on circumstances. God is joy-filled. Joy is a constancy with God. It's part of who he is. In part, this is revealed to us. Look at 1 Chronicles 16, 27. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. Psalm 16, 11 reads this way. You've made known to me the path of life. In your presence there is the fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. There are many, many descriptions of God as joyful in the, in the scriptures. Here's just a few. Joy over the lost sheep. Joy over the lost coin. Joy over the prodigal son's return. 
Joy over those that come to repentance. Joy over his creation and more and more. My brothers and sisters, when we abide in Christ, when we are experiencing life with him, when we're filled with God the Holy Spirit, one of the very certain and tangible results is joy. Recall with me in Galatians 5, the Apostle Paul, in a contrast between the living in the flesh and living under the direction and the filling of the Holy Spirit, has this to say in Galatians 5, and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And against such things there is no law. One of the evidences of God the Holy Spirit's living in me is joy. The very joy of Christ in me. This is the joy that Jesus decreed in his prayer of intercession. This joy is the reason Jesus described the disciples' relations to him as a branch abiding in a vine. This joy is the character of God through me as his disciple. I want to lead you into a glimpse of the power of God's joy. Return with me for a moment to the upper room with Jesus and his disciples gathered for the last Passover. You recall Christ's words, do not let your hearts be troubled. They were troubled. They were anxious. They were unsure. They were confused. They could not comprehend that Jesus was about to die and he was going to leave them behind. Jesus loved them. He washed their feet. And the Passover observance began. At the table, Jesus, troubled in his spirit, said aloud, One of you is going to betray me. Satan entered Judas, and Jesus told Judas to leave. Judas left and continued with the plan to portray Jesus with a midnight arrest in the garden where the disciples with Christ were gathered to pray. Jesus would lead the authorities to their meeting place on the Mount of Olives. In the upper room, we have recorded in Mark 14, as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after blessing the bread, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks... He gave it to them, and they drank it. Jesus gave thanks to God, and the root of the word thanks is joy. Our Lord took the bread and thanked, joyed with the Father, praising him. Our Lord took the cup, and again, in conversation with the Father, with joy, thanked the Father, praising him. And in fact, this is what Jesus said. Thank you, Father, that this bread, which symbolizes my body, is about to be beaten, whipped, and crucified. Thank you, Father, that my blood is about to be poured out and spilled, symbolized by this cup. Thank you, Father, I'm about to receive your wrath, and you'll be glorified as sinners come to salvation, forgiveness, through the sacrifice of me myself. Thank you. Our Lord expressed his joyful heart of gratitude to the Father despite the circumstances. Circumstances did not change his heart of thankfulness, his heart of joy. God reveals to us 
the Lord's joy-filled and thankful heart as he was crucified. Turn with me or look with me, please, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. We have this, it says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus had a grateful heart, a joyous heart. Jesus was in a living, he was a living example of 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 18, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Jesus was rejoicing always, praying continually, he gave thanks. Circumstances did not distract Jesus from rejoicing always, praying always, or giving thanks. Go with me now to a different time and place. Another example of the power of joy in a disciple of Christ. The place, Philippi. The time, roughly 60 AD. The setting, the apostle Paul and Silas were walking through the city of Philippi, headed for a prayer meeting. We have this recorded in Acts chapter 16, verses 16 through 19, 22 through 26. Read with me. As they were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her own as much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are the servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out that very hour. When our owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore off their garments and gave orders to beat them with rods. And after they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. The jailer, having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so the foundations of the prison were shaken, and nearly all the doors were open, everyone's bonds were unfastened. Paul and Silas, dragged, attacked, beaten, clothes torn off, beaten with many blows, jailed in stocks, can't move, in the prison, they're singing and praising God. How do you do that? How is it possible for a middle-aged couple and the circumstances of their newly quadriplegic son and the failed marriage of their daughter are joyful, really joy-filled? How is it possible for Jesus looking forward to the suffering, look forward with joy and thank God in the process? How is it that during the crucifixion he had a heart of joy? How do you do that? How is it possible that Paul and Silas, half-naked, beaten, stripped in stocks, are praising God? Take a lesson from a saint who was once young, 
from a Christian who's lived for years without the joy of the Lord. Your self-effort, your hard work, your good intentions will not accomplish the will of God. No amount of church going, good works, or other activity will bring to you the joy of the Lord. The only way to have a heart of joy is to abide in Christ, live with God, and be filled with God the Holy Spirit, setting aside your sinful self. I have a catchphrase that I use to keep my focus on abiding in Christ, living with God, and setting aside my sinful self to be filled with God the Holy Spirit. It is, never let circumstances get between you and your awareness of God. Anytime we allow circumstances to distract us from our intimate relationship with God, we will not have a joy-filled heart. We will become unthankful. Anytime I focus on difficult circumstances and I allow them to distract me from my intimate relationship with God, I will not have a joy-filled heart. I will become unthankful. Why is this true? It's true because looking at the circumstances means I'm focusing on myself. Me. Not God. Never let circumstances get between you and your awareness of God. Then and only then will you, like Christ, who did not focus on the circumstances, then and only then will you, like Paul and Silas, who did not focus on circumstances, then and only then will you, like this couple that discipled Shelley and I through all their pain, who did not focus on the circumstances, then and only then will you have the joy of God, regardless of circumstances. Only then will you experience God's will in your life, day after day. Empowered by God the Holy Spirit, you will find yourself rejoicing always, praying continually, and giving thanks in all circumstances. This is the reality of God's presence, his work in and through you. Abide in Jesus. Live with God. Be filled with God the Holy Spirit, yielding your sinful self again and again and again. And you too will be a living testimony in answer to the prayer of Jesus the Creator. You will know the will of God with a power that causes others like me so very long ago to look and to marvel, asking God, what is it about you that is so very different? The answer is the very presence and power of God within you, the unshakable joy of God. This will be an answer to the decree of Jesus as he prayed, the very joy of Christ within you, that your joy will be full. Father, we thank you. We come to you, Father, hearts of praise. We thank you for Jesus Christ, our Savior. We thank you, Father, you've made the way of intimate relationship possible through his sacrifice. We thank you, Father, for the work of your Holy Spirit within and without us. Thank you, Lord, you have made the way with you a way of joy. I pray for each one here this morning, Lord, and I pray especially for me, that, Father, we would learn all the quicker to yield our sinful self 
And Father, we'd experience the very power of your joy within us. We thank you, Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen.